I hope and pray that as you sang that, you were paying close attention to those words. Ah, that is our call. That is our life. We continue in our look at the book of Galatians. And we come to a passage of scripture that is particularly meaningful for us in today's church. And so we, we want to hear. So please pay close attention. I mentioned before that Robert Frost is my favorite American poet. And as you look at the picture on the screen and see where it was taken and what, he, where, what he's sitting on, you might be able to guess that one of my favorite Frost poems is Mending Wall. I, I absolutely love it. And I want to share a portion of it with you today down to what I believe is the most important line of the poem. Something there is that doesn't love a wall. It sends the frozen groundswell under it and spills the upper boulders in the sun and makes gaps even two can pass abreast. The work of hunters is another thing. I've come after them and made repair where they have left not one stone on a stone, but they would have the rabbit out of hiding to please the yelping dogs. The gaps, I mean. No one has seen them made or heard them made, but at spring mending time we find them there. I let my neighbor know beyond the hill, and on a day we meet to walk the line and set the wall between us once again. We keep the wall between us as we go, to each the boulders that have fallen to each. As some are lows and some so nearly balls, we have to use a spell to make them keep their balance. Stay where you are until we, our backs are turned. We wear our fingers rough with handling. Oh, just another kind of outdoor game, one on a side. It comes to little more. There where it is, we do not need the wall. He is all pine, and I am all apple orchard. My apple trees will never get across and eat the cones under his pines. I tell him. He only says, Good fences make good neighbors. Spring is a mischief in me. And I wonder if I could put a notion in his head. Why do they make good neighbors? Isn't it where there are cows? But here there are no cows. Before I built a wall, I'd ask to know what I was walling in or walling out and to whom I was like to give offense. Very important line. And I understand, there are a lot of different interpretations to this poem. And some folks are saying, the neighbor's right, you need the walls. And some are saying, the walls need to come down. I know there are a lot of interpretations. But I believe this is a very important line. Before I built a wall, I want to find out who I'm walling out. Why? Now, why do I bring that up in Galatians? Because in my life, there have been times when walls have come up between myself and people that I love. And sometimes, I have to admit, I was the cause. Maybe I forgot to do something. Maybe I misspoke. Maybe I didn't show a kindness. And I'm willing to bet, were I a betting man on the Gulf Coast of Mississippi, that everybody here, or at least Everyone of a certain age 
has felt the pain of a wall that's come up between you and someone you love. And in today's text, the most personal in all of the book of Galatians, Paul explained why he was personally grieved at the divide that had come between him and his readers. So as you stand, we're going to hear what he had to say. And I'm going to be reading from the Revised English Bible today, and I will let you know why in just a few moments. Uh, But please, as I tell you frequently, listen with your ears and your heart. Put yourself in my place, my friends. I beg you. As I put myself in yours, you never did me any wrong. It was bodily illness, as you well remember, that originally led me to bringing you the gospel. And you released, resisted any temptation to show scorn or disgust at my physical condition. On the contrary, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God. As you might have welcomed Christ Jesus himself. What has become of the happiness you felt then? I believe you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me had that been possible. Have I now made myself your enemy by being frank with you? Others are lavishing attention on you. But without sincerity, what they really want is to isolate you so that you may lavish attention on them. To be the object of sincere intentions is always good, and not just when I'm with you. You are my own children, and I am in labor with you all over again until you have come You have to have the form of Christ. How I wish I could be with you now. For then I could modify my tone. As it is, I'm at my wit's ends about you. You may be seated. God bless the reading of his word. Today in the body of Christ, we're at a very crucial moment in time. We watch our influence eroding in the culture around us. We watch the world growing increasingly hostile to our faith. And it's crucial that we understand this. We have carefully got to guard against anyone building walls between us that could divide the family of God. But how will we do this? How can we guard against divisions in the body? For that to be possible, we need to be committed to the kind of acts that grow out of the principles in this text, revealed in Paul's plea for restoration. And as we look at this text, I pray that your heart will understand, you will grab hold of it, that we will be committed to saying, let no walls divide us. Let no walls divide us. We want to stand firm, we want to stand together, we want to love and nurture one another. So let's listen to the acts that need to happen. What needs to happen in our lives to guard against disunity? The very first act, we must heed the call to unity. We've got to listen 
to what Paul's saying. We need to heed this call to unity. And when you look at Paul, again, I told you, this is the most personal of all this book. And it gets very personal here. Paul gave the Galatians an earnest plea to walk with him. James Montgomery Boyce has has said about our text, if the reader is inclined to think Paul has been impersonal in dealing with the problems of Galatia, the present passage should remove any suspicion. This isn't an academic concern for Paul. This is his life. This is his heart. And he wants them to understand there is a breach that needs to be mended here. A breach in their relationship. Because someone has put a wall that needs to come down. And so we look at the most personal part of Paul's letter, and it began, begins the very first command in this book. The very first imperative mood is used here. Become as I am, as I became like you. That command is going to increase. That, that mood, imperative mood will get more and more involved as the book reaches its conclusions. See, Paul has given them all of the the doctrine. He's told them the truth. And now, he's beginning that point, and he says, now this is what you need to do about it. Folks, it doesn't do us any good to listen to the truth of God's Word and then walk away and forget it. So Paul's saying, this is what you need to do here. And by the way, in the original text, there's actually only one verb. If you have the King James Version, you might have noticed a couple of words in that verse in italics. What that means, those words aren't in the original text. And the translator supplied them so we could understand. And we needed it because this is the way it reads, literally. Because I become as I, because I also as you. I beg you. Doesn't that just answer every question you've got? Become as I, because I also as you. And I do want you to note, as I've given you that, become as I, as I as you, I beg you. Paul's just said, you need to become like me. Now most translations put I beg you at the first of the verse. And we miss the fact that it's an emphatic position. The revising this version, one of the reasons I'm using the REV is it puts it in the middle. It kind of tries to get the feel. But either in the middle or the end, sometimes we think the last word spoken isn't that important. Folks, in this language of the text, the last word is often, pay attention, please. And he's saying, please hear me. He's showing his heart here. Because, become as I, or as R.A.B., take my place, what he means. When I got saved, when there was justified by faith in Christ, I put the law behind me. When I came to live you, he's saying to the, the Galatians, I, I lived with you as a Gentile. I ate the same food you went. I came into your homes without any hesitation. I became one of you. Now, you become like me. The irony of all this, Paul 
left the law behind after his conversions, and the Galatians are thinking about going back to the law after their conversion. A complete flip-flop. And it doesn't make sense. Paul says, when he looked back at the way things were, you never did me any wrong. And he'll expand that in a moment. You never did anything wrong. But can you hear the implication? What is implied here? You never did me any wrong, and you're getting dangerously close to crossing that line right now. And then he raises the apostle. Is it me? Is this divide here? Am I now your enemy? If I made myself your enemy, because I'm being frank with you, I'm telling you the truth. And the truth hurts. Paul's pleading with them. Remember the way things were, and we need to get back to that love, that connection we had. You see, the reality is, in the world in which we live, it is far too easy to fall into the temptation to go our own way. Let's be frank. As Westerners, we really don't like people telling us what to do, do we? I didn't like it when I was a child and my parents, it was, it was already part of my, my, my fallen nature. When my parents gave me a, an order, I didn't like following it. And there's still times I don't like people telling me what to do. And the result, even in believers, can be very telling. There was a poll done in July 2005. Get ready because you're about to be hopefully shocked. But if you've been paying attention, maybe not so. According to this poll, barely a third of all Americans believe in absolute standards of right and wrong. Barely a third. And even fewer hold a biblical worldview. The poll was done by the Barna Group, a Christian research organization, and it showed that only 35% of Americans believe in absolute standards of morality, that, it is, that is, believe that right and wrong do not change with time or circumstance. The reason that's shocking, folks, remember, when this poll was done, it was probably closer to 70%, but 65% of Americans say they are followers of Christ. But only a third, a little over a third of Americans believe right is right and wrong is wrong. Of those who don't, 32% just said morality depends on the situation and circumstance. It might be right under a certain circumstance. The other 33% that say they don't believe in absolute morality, they actually say I don't know if there's absolute reality, morality or not. They pretty don't care, much don't care. And if you've ever said or heard the words, that might be true for you, but it is not true for me, or who are you to judge me, you've got a good sense of what moral relativity is. Bar, uh, Greg Mitchell said the fact that only 35% of all Americans believe in moral absolutes provide some frightening insight into our culture and the future of our culture. The statistic translated means that most people are willing to do whatever they can get away with. 
With so many rejecting the idea of moral absolutes, it's only a matter of time until our society collapses. Polls consistently show, folks, the majority of Americans consider themselves to be Christians. But this poll revealed only 5% of Americans. 65% I'm a Christian. Only 5% give evidence that they hold to a biblical worldview. And Barna defines a biblical worldview. Believing that moral absolutes exist, the source of truth is the Bible. The Bible is accurate in all the principles it teaches. Salvation is by grace alone. Jesus lived a sinless life. Believers have a duty to witness. Satan is real and not just a symbol. God is the all-knowing, all-powerful maker of the universe who still rules today. And Barna said, what our polls are showing, churches decide they are successful if they have good attendance, congregant satisfaction, dollars raised, and built out square footage. None of this dealing with the radical lifestyle Jesus said, follow me and be willing to go to the cross. If we continue to abandon the uh, Christian worldview, biblical worldview, and again, folks, 5% have it, and 65% say they should, we're going to fail. We need to stay committed, connected to one another based on the principles of God's Word. Paul isn't saying, I want you to follow me because I like you and I want you to like me. He says, I want you to become as I am because my life is built on the bedrock of God's word revealed in Christ, the salvation he brings. You need to have that same idea. So may we earnestly seek to understand the need for unity. And I'm not saying unity at all costs. I'm not saying unity by... Surrendering your convictions. I'm saying unity that comes together when we together believe the Word of God. When we together share with each other. Have you ever thought about that line in Brethren We Have Met to Worship? When the the writer says, Pray for us as we preach the Word. Now they may have meant a royal we. I've never used that term. I I don't... If you, if I'm ever telling you we studied really hard this week, something is fried in my brain. I don't like the royal we. But I want to give a different slant. Do you know that a few minutes ago you were preaching to each other? Did you know that according to the Word of God? Paul tells the Colossians, Speak the truth to one another in all the songs that you're singing. So yeah, I get to be the guy at the pulpit, but you were already preaching as we sang those words, reminding each other of our truths. The tie that binds us is our relationship to Christ, which builds our relationship to one another. And if we're going to have any hope to see renewal within us, we need to be committed to unity. And then we must remember the compassion that leads to personal sacrifice. A compassion that is running far deeper than, oh, bless his heart. 
compassion that is full of love and meaning. And when you look at Paul and he describes what happened, Paul could recall a time his readers would have sacrificed themselves on his behalf. He said, you remember it was because of physical illness that I came and preached the gospel to you. The book of Acts doesn't talk about this. And Paul doesn't go into great detail. We don't know any detail about this other than Paul says, there came a moment in time my illness brought me to your door, and when it did, I shared the gospel with you. Now what's interesting, biblical scholars will spend a lot of time trying to figure out what Paul's illness was. There's a lot of argument. You read through 10 commentaries, you may get 10 different ideas. These are the top. He had eye problems. Because you would have plucked out your eyes, and I signed this with my name in big letters. He had epilepsy, which is probably related to the idea of the the scorn that they showed. And some have suggested he got malaria while he was down on the coast, went further inland to get over it. The truth is, we don't know what his illness was. And if we get caught up in what it was, we miss the point. Paul said, illness hit me, and God used it to bring me to you to share the gospel. You see, Paul understood something. Paul understood the hand of God moving in his life, that even in a moment of weakness, God could bring glory to his name. And so Paul, when he talks about the thorn in the flesh, in Corinthians, when I'm weak, God's made strong, and I can be what God wants me to be, and I've come to you. God uses a lot of bad instances in our lives to bring us wholeness. And he said, when you did, when when you saw, you didn't have this... Scorn for me, you, you didn't look at me with disgust. You would have plucked your own eyes out for me if you could have. Now again, instead of saying, well, that proves he's had ophthalmia, let's just acknowledge this is kind of almost a proverbial statement. There's nothing you would, have sac- would not have sacrificed to help me. Your love for me was so strong, you would have given me the deepest personal sacrifice You can. And as someone who's just come through a couple of cataract surgeries, and now everything is bright and light, I can tell you in the 21st century how important your eyes are. In Paul's day, it was crucial. He's saying, you would have given anything for me because you loved me. The joy that can come from compassionate service is amazing. Paul says, what happened to the happiness? What happened to the joy you had? They took joy. They congratulated themselves that God allowed them to minister to this man who is bringing them truth. And there is a bond that comes between us. When we look beyond our own issues, our own problems, our own heart hurts, and reach out to other people, sacrificing our wants and comfort. And shared tears of sorrow can do amazing things. In 1984, after 10 seasons with the Chicago Bears as place kicker, Bob Thomas was notified by the Bears' management that he was being cut. At the end of the day, he waited for the locker room to clear out. Thomas was a Christian. 
And he couldn't bear to look on these men that he had come to love in this situation. So he waited till the locker room was cleared. But when he walked in, there was one person left standing by his locker. His fellow Christian, Walter Payton, uh, one of the most celebrated folks in NFL history, he was standing there. He wanted to be there for his friend. And the moment Bob saw Walter, he buried his face in the running back's chest and allowed this Christian friend to comfort him. When Walter Payton died in 99, Thomas recalled that emotional moment. He said, to share your grief with a Hall of Fame running back with that kind of compassion, empathy, and ability is really my fondest memory of the guy we called Sweetness. That's a pretty cool nickname. I guess you had to be an NFL running back to get away with it. Uh, What did he sacrifice? His time? His love? His shoulder? For a man who was no longer going to be his teammate. Do you know how many people, when they lose a teammate in professional sports, they may regret it for the team, but they're going to say, well, bye-bye, hope you have a good time. This man was willing to take his time and be that. So think about times when someone sacrificed to touch your life, when you reached out to someone in compassion. And may we embrace the giving of ourselves for the good of others. Open in our hearts the hurting is part of our heritage. We must never forget that, folks. We must never forget. And Paul will bring up this idea again later in Galatians when he said, you need to bear each other's burdens. That's our call. Our next truth, we must refuse to fall for the lies of this world. And boy, the lies are a lot. There are a lot of things being said that have no connection to the truth. And when at this point, when Paul's writing... Paul doesn't mention the only thing he doesn't do here is name the people by name. But Paul gave a not so subtle warning about the false teachers. And they were false. He said, they're lavishing you with attention. They're lavishing you. Just heaping it on you. The word can be used for courtship. When a a man and woman are, are paying attention to each other. Amazing how after the bond is sealed sometimes, that part of a relationship gets forgotten. I got them now. The Galatians are having all this attention on you. And another reason I chose the RAB, because it catches the heart of what Paul says. They don't really love you. They're wanting to isolate you. They're wanting to cut you off. Now, he doesn't say to whom, but the implication, they want you to cut me off. Because they want you to give them all of your attention. They don't love you. They're wanting to separate you from me and all other Christians who are holding to the truth. Because the false teachers knew if they keep listening to Paul, they may quit listening to us. 
And Paul said that they have ulterior motives. Now, it does go on to say, when someone shows you attention and it's sincere and it's because they love you and they're showing compassion to you, that's a great thing. And he lets them know, I didn't just do that when I'm with you. I'm paying attention to you now. Now, this kind of attention doesn't feel good. You know, when Paul's saying, you're, you're off track, but it was needed. These people don't love you. And the reality is, in this world, sometimes in the church, those who divide the body are driven by selfish reasons. We turn people into objects. That's, he, he's no good. He's a sinner. He's, he's a liar. He's not, and all these, the moment you objectify somebody, you quit caring about them. You don't love them anymore. When there's something to be used, you don't love them. And it's a documented fact among those who study. I suggest, if you're interested, Walter Martin's The Kingdom of the Cults. It's a, it's a common practice for false teachers and cults to take somebody and say, okay, you need to be with us. Cut your family off, cut your friends off, cut your other religious teachers off. You need to, because they're going to try to lead you away from the truth. When the ones that are seek to divide are in the church, their motives are suspect. The very first church fight I ever witnessed, I was 13 years old. Hollywood Baptist Church, Dallas, Texas. And I was there at the business meeting. The deacons brought charges against the pastor. Said we needed to get rid of him. Now this man had already ministered to my family. This was my... First step in coming back to where God wanted me to be, my family as well. One of the charges were that he used profanity from the pulpit. And when pressed, you know what horrible, evil, wicked profanity this pastor used from the pulpit? He used the word, ready. Now I'm quoting, so please don't get mad at me. He used the word damnation. Okay, you catch it, don't you? This is 1973 in Texas in a Southern Baptist church. Sooner or later, there's going to be talk of judgment. Sooner or later, we're going to come across that word, scriptural idea of damnation. Even as a 13-year-old boy, I could see the disrespect of the highest order as they kept lobbing charges against him that were clearly untrue. And then it came to a head and their hatred overflowed overflowed as they stomped out of the church, slamming the doors behind them because the church had voted to affirm the pastor. Folks, I've been with you long enough. You know we don't agree on everything, right? I've never met anybody that I agree with everything. If I do, I will probably be a little bit afraid. But when there is disagreement, we are called to have the best interests of the body in mind. We can't let disagreement become hateful division. The moment we do, we've lost our course. So may we carefully protect the body from the users in this world. 
the body of Christ, the church should be a place of sanctity and safety. Folks, let's, let's, there is enough garbage in the world that tears us down and hurts and shames and tries to destroy us. The body of Christ should be one place where we know, here I am loved. They might always agree with me, but they love me. And if we allow the practices of the world to invade us, again, we've lost our way as the church. Our final truth, our final action. We must be willing to talk to each other. When we look at Paul, he said he wished he could see his readers face to face. He starts off by calling them friends. In some translations, use the word brothers, and brothers is technically true, but the idea of friends is you have love for me in a family kind of friendly way. He calls them here, you're my own children. And he was willing to suffer on their behalf. Folks, this is the only place in the New Testament that Paul calls himself a mother. It's a very weird image for Paul. Not used anywhere else. And he says, I am having labor pains all over again for you. Quick show of hands. How many ladies that you've had labor pains with one child will want, after they've been born, to go back and have labor pains again? I was pretty sure I knew that answer. Paul is probably referencing that moment in time that Christ was born in them. He had labor pains as they were coming to the truth. And now he's saying, I'm having labor pains for you all over again. And it's kind of easy to see that he is in distress. He wants to secure the well-being of his children. They are, they are thinking of defecting from the truth and it's causing him intense pain. And then Paul does what he likes to do. If any of you studied English as your major in history, I apologize for Paul uh, because he switches the metaphor in midstream. Mixing metaphors will not get you good points in most English classes. Thankfully, Paul wasn't writing in English. He has just described himself as an expectant mother. And I will be having labor pangs for you until... This is an interesting point. The word that is used until Christ is formed in you That word is a word that is a medical term for the growth of the fetus in the mother's womb. He switched. I'm having labor pains and you need to give birth. Now it's a weird switch. It's a weird metaphor to begin with. Again, I've used the the R.A.B. to help us get the idea behind this. You are my own children, and I am in labor with you all over again until you come to have the form of Christ. 
what he's saying by this weird metaphor, I will be in pain over you until the moment in time you're growing in the Lord again. And Christ is becoming more and more a part of your life. I will hurt for you. I will ache for you. And it's not going to let go. John Calvin said, He is born in us that we may live his life. The idea we are being changed over and over again in the scripture. We're supposed to be changed from glory to glory. Christ is supposed to be becoming more and more part of who we are. We are to learn to live surrendering ourselves to him. And he says, I wish I could see you face to face. Why? Because a handwritten letter is not an adequate substitute. One of the reasons I'm really uncomfortable with texting and email, I can't hear a person's tone of voice. I can't look into their eyes. I can't read their body language. There is a problem there. Now, I can get it if they're extremely mad or extremely happy if they put everything in all caps. But I can't really hear their heart. And Paul says, if I could be with you, maybe I could tone my message down. Because you could see that I love you. You could hear it. I could see your reactions. We could talk through this. But I can't. And so he says, I don't know what to do. But folks, don't let that make you think Paul's given up. Someone has said he was exasperated, perplexed, and heartbroken. This situation was desperate. But defeat was not a foregone conclusion. The Galatians might still have been won back from the brink of disaster. And the gleam of hope that later emerges in the letter, chapter 5, verse 10, is based on the fact that the all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. So what does this mean when Paul says, I want to see you face to face. I I want us to talk this out. And I'm going to hurt for you until things are right. The wounds that drive us apart should not be ignored. We can't hide from the rest that happen. We can't pretend they're just not there. Scholar O'Hare famously said, I can think about, I can't think about that right now. If I do, I'll go crazy. I'll think about that tomorrow. That is not good Christian understanding. This should not be our philosophy. When we're dealing with uncomfortable moments in the body of Christ, we need to work through our problems. And there was a verse I shared with you earlier. We shared together at the end of our responsive reading. Let me read it to you from the REV. Above all, maintain the fervor of your love for one another because love cancels a host of sins. When we love each other, we can find grace. But we've got to be willing to acknowledge and talk and reach out. So may we come to a place where we can share our pains and find healing for the body, our family. This is our call as members of the body. This is the path Jesus gave us. That responsive reading we did is a little uncomfortable for us, isn't it? When we start hearing about brothers who have something against you. Jesus said we need to build bridges, trying to 
build the gap that can divide. This is our call. This is our purpose. Haddon Robinson, in a sermon of prescription for the spiritually challenged. I really like that title. You may have to use it at some point. But he talked about Alfred Lord Tennyson made a statement about Archbishop Cranmer. This is what Tennyson said. To do him hurt was to beget a kindness from him. His heart was made of such fine soil that if you planted in it the seeds of hate, they blossomed love. And Robinson said, I want that to be true of us. And we are better at it than we think we are. Because the spirit of love lives in those who put their trust in Jesus Christ. Apart, folks, when we see hatred, when we see disgust, when we, that word disgust and scorn, Paul literally said, you didn't spit at me. Probably referring to spitting to avoid a harmful curse. But folks, when the body of Christ is spitting at each other, we've lost our way. We need a determination. And we need to pray, God, give us this determination now. Let no walls divide us. And that can become a reality. We can be a church of unity in the midst of disagreements, in the midst of when we fail one another, if we're willing to reach out. It can happen if we heed the call to unity, understanding the world, the world needs to see Christian love today. I've seen the alternative far too often. Those people who study these things say it usually takes a church at least a decade, at least 10 years to recover from a church fight in the community it serves. We need to walk in unity. We need to remember the compassion that leads to personal sacrifice and realize this whole church thing, this whole body of Christ isn't about, Lord, let me get what I want. Well, let me be willing to sacrifice my wants and my comfort for the body as a whole. It will happen if we refuse to fall for the lies of the world. When the church embraces worldly tactics to try and get its job done, we're, forgot, we're forgetting. We're passing through. This is not our home. And the world shouldn't determine the way we feel about one another. It can happen if we are willing to talk with each other. Today, we need to commit to standing firm together. We need to commit that the Lord, remember that verse in Romans, as far as it is possible within you, live at peace with all people. We can't do anything about other people. We can make a determined nation that we want to be known as sons of God. We want to be peacekeepers, peacemakers. So I'm asking you, as sincerely as I know how, 
This is not a this is not a moment where I'm telling you you my friends and my family. I'm not telling you you need to get your act together. Because I'm asking you to join with me. The radical discipleship class has a lot of challenging things to do and I'm teaching it with some of the WANA leaders on Monday nights. Got a message from one. Well, let's talk about discipleship asking the group as a whole is making any changes in your lives. You might expect me to say, well, I know this stuff. I'm the one teaching it. But I talked about one of the changes that are happening in me. But I need you to join with me. Because today I need to recommit myself to the principles of this text. I can carry hurts just like anybody else. And I can fail just like anybody else. So today I'm not saying, will you get your act right? I'm saying let us together commit ourselves to the principles of this text. Let us together start seeking to strive that we we become a light in this dark world. That we will be a church that has decided we're knocking down any walls that would divide us. I'm asking you to join with me as we seek the Lord.